and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Scott Nye, and I'm just noticing that I seem to be much darker than usual. And this isn't a video podcast, so I, the listeners don't have to worry about this. But uh, I was just looking at my screen and was like, yeah, a little, a little dim tonight. Not sure what that's about because my lighting has not changed. Anyway, I'm Scott Nye. I'm David Bax. Tyler Smith is not here. He's uh, still, uh, I don't know, institutionalized. It doesn't sound like the right kind of thing. No, I don't think it's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> But he is in a facility, which feels like it could be a, a euphemism. <laughs> Literally, sure. he's in a facility. It's just like I still say, like hospitalized, but technically, the place he is not is not a hospital, but it's a medical care facility where he's getting. It's a little more like boutique, and he's getting. You know, it's it's actually nice for him that he's like not one of thirty or forty patients on a floor. He's one of like six in this facility, which is great. Um, but if you want to know. If you want to know how you can help him, um, there's a link to the GoFundMe uh pinned to the top of the homepage at battleshippretension.com you can also check out the caring bridge site although there haven't been any updates uh recently um at uh, that's my pinned tweet at davy pretension but uh also i mean tyler's tweeting so follow him at, at more lessons or i guess follow him on facebook i'm not really a, I'm a little bit too cool for facebook but tyler's not so uh <laughs> he's on there um not sure what I, that says about either of you actually <laughs> <laughs> um Wait, what does it say about me? I I know it says, it says I'm too cool for Facebook. That's what it says about me. Well, it's it says it, that you think you're too cool for Facebook. Look, I've always said that coolness is in the eyes of the beholder. No, that's not true. Coolness is in your own heart. Okay. That's what it is. That like you're as cool as you think you are, probably. Um everyone everybody can define cool for themselves. Uh it doesn't mean you're as funny or as charming as you think you are. That's different. Well, that's, that's in the yeah. eye of that's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. But uh, as long as you're cool with yourself, look, you know, you have to love yourself first. That's the. But then again, that sounds like an excuse for narcissism. I'm just thinking all these things through <laughs> as I'm saying them. Uh, I noticed you were a little darker, and it, that's funny because it has been as we talked about on the Patreon this this month. <laughs> um, it's been. Uh, it's been quite gray. We had May gray go right into June gloom, but today was like the burst of sunlight through the clouds all day. We had a sunny day today. It's been lovely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just in, in Philly and New York and had more beautiful weather than I think you had here. Uh, I got well, out of New York. I was going to say in time, literally just in time. I like don't know I what had, it'll be like by the time this posts, but we should at least acknowledge that. Yes. The weather has turned considerably since you left. Uh, yeah, I had a beautiful Tuesday morning. We went to, uh, went on a walk from our hotel to Katz's delicatessen and did that. Uh, I wonder if any locals actually eat at Katz's or Katz's or is it all just tourists all the time? Um, but anyway, it was good. Um, walked back to the hotel, went to, took the, took public transit to, to JFK, landed in LAX at LAX a number of hours later to turn my phone and realized that a, uh, uh, a dark cloud had settled over the city. Uh, so, uh, my condolences or whatever the word is, uh, my, my sympathies to, uh, New Yorkers and other parts of the East coast that are, are dealing with this. I'm not going to be one of those Angelinos who's like, Oh, this is your first, uh, yeah. uh, one. Cause it's like, yeah, I mean, it is something we deal with more often, but also it sucks. It sucks when we deal with it too. You know, it also seems like it's considerably worse there. Like the number of, times we've had a warning that you like you really shouldn't be outside or yeah. very few yeah yeah um 
Yeah, I guess the last one I remember was probably it was pre-COVID, it was probably four or five years ago. I remember it being really bad and being so bad that when I, uh, yeah, it must have been like four years, like twenty nineteen, because I remember like taking my dog for a walk and literally there were ashes falling on the ground uh, around me because the uh, that was when the fire was in like the Burbank Hills, if you remember that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that one that kind of spooked me because I could literally see the fire because I have caused to go to Burbank fairly frequently and I could literally see the fires yeah. on the horizon. Well, yeah, we lived in North Hollywood at the time facing the hills. We could oh, see yeah. it from our like staircase leading up to our second floor apartment. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, again, my condolences to to New Yorkers. Um, uh, I guess also my uh, not condolences to the uh, mental health and career of Shelley Duvall uh, based on quite a, a pivot uh, based on a Twitter thread that uh, went went wide on a uh, on film Twitter today. Yeah. Uh, you know, we always try to look for these uh, top of the show topics, little things we can touch on. And uh, just today there was a fairly long thread that I just had up and I should really reopen. Um, it's kind of revisiting a topic that occasionally trends on film Twitter from time to time, talking about how horrible Stanley Kubrick was to Shelley Duvall on the set of the shining and how you can see in her performance that she must've been just, on the you know on the edge of sanity throughout the entire shoot, ignoring the fact that Shelley Duvall is uh, or was and I would say probably still is a very fine actress capable of summoning those emotions herself and did so in numerous films well before then. And the idea, the thread just kind of gets into the idea that um, reading that onto her performance kind of diminishes her capabilities as an actor and her own sense of professionalism. You know, they talk about the fact that the it was a long arduous. Um, difficult shoot as Kubrick shoots tend to be, but that she had nothing but great things to say about him both before or during the shoot and after it. Um, and that really uh, her sense of stability at the time is probably more thrown off by the fact that apparently I always forget about this, but uh, one, she dated Paul Simon and Paul Simon broke up with her, like as he was dropping her off at the airport to go fly to London to shoot the shining. Um, and they're like, that might've had a larger effect on her emotional stability <laughs> than, you know, a director being a little rough, Given the fact, you know, in addition to Kubrick's reputation and all that, she did work with Robert Altman for a number of years and Altman had a good reputation with actors, but he could also be a little harsh himself. Um, so anyway, it was just a really valuable thread that kind of got into the fact that, you know, not all women who portray um, terif a terrified character on screen are that in real life. And it's not always just a reflection of uh, them. They might just be a really good actress, as is the case with Shelley <laughs> Duvall. Yeah, but I think a part of this reputation has often come from the like special features on the DVD, like the making of, and 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 um, she does seem legitimately rattled. But that maybe that's just her her process. I think this uh, it reminds me of something that I, I can't remember. If the, the Tyler has often said this, and he probably says it more eloquently than I'm about to. Um, but he's he's often warned against like reflexively getting offended on behalf of someone who hasn't told you that they're yeah. offended yet. You know that's that's a. Uh, I think he sees Tyler as a as a conservative person sees a lot of like condescending left wingers do that all the time. Sure, of like insisting people are victims. Um, you know, without them, uh, uh, saying that they they feel like victims. So, um. Yeah, I don't want to say that we're coming here like we're not 
writing to the defense of uh, monomaniacal directors. There are plenty of those, um, you know, but there are cases where um, the, 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 the person himself, the actor them, themselves has actually said this person was, you know, you've heard, you've heard these stories about, about Joss Whedon or about like um, uh, Maria Schneider on the set of last Tango in Paris. Like these, these people have told us they feel victimized. We, as you're saying, maybe shouldn't be projecting it onto someone who hasn't, who has insisted otherwise. Yeah. And the other thing that people kind of point to is like, well, she didn't get a lot of major roles after that. And like, that's kind of true, but she also entered arguably like the most successful phase of her career, like doing television. She did those like fairy tale theater things for seriously like decades in various iterations um, yeah. and seemed to like really enjoy that. And then like that kind of petered out and then she retired and, you know, Hey, good for her. We should, that's, this is maybe another mini topic we can do some days, if not a full topic, but people keep like getting upset at actors retiring or like filmmakers retiring and be like, they got to work till they're dead. And it's like, man, if I had that kind of money and I was 60, 65, yeah. I'm out. That's it. Yeah. Cause I guess Brian Cranston says he's going to retire yeah. in like, uh, like three years or something. He said, yeah. um, yeah, I did Tyler and I did a whole episode on oh, actors okay. who retired. Um, not that long ago, like, um, maybe only a couple of years ago, like during COVID, I think we did. Yeah, who retired? Um, and it is sad to not like. It's sad that we don't have Gene Hackman or Bridget Fonda in movies sure. anymore. But you got to put like it's what they want, you know. Yeah, we don't get everything. I, I think a lot of uh, another thing that Tyler has often railed against is uh, fans uh, believing that the artists they're fans of owe them something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they retired. Get over it. There's other, there's other things, you know, be happy for them. And do you know how many Gene Hackman movies I haven't seen? It's probably more than I have. <laughs> uh, real quick before we move into the real, the main topic, uh, you mentioned that fairy tale theater thing and it reminded me of, um, uh, I, I I know the answer before I even ask you because I know what kind of movies you don't watch. But uh, <laughs> did you see that like HBO Robin Williams bio bio documentary uh, come inside my mind? No, I the life of Robin Williams. I think I noticed this was a thing. Yeah, it was a few years ago. Um, anyway, he was he was doing an episode of Fairy Tale Theater dressed as a frog in green makeup when he found out that. Mork and Mindy was canceled. Oh no. <laughs> and there's actually like backstage footage of him being like talking shit about ABC and like <laughs> being pissed off, like while dressed as a fox <laughs> or a frog. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, well, before we move into the main topic, I guess I, I, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, I use them each and every day of my life. Today, honestly, I spent most of the day um, listening to Taylor Swift, which is what I do uh, a lot of times, listening to... uh, So, like, initially, she released Midnight's, her most recent album. Then there was an extended edition called the Midnight's 3 a.m. edition. Now there's an even longer extended edition called oh the Midnight's Till Dawn edition. So uh, I listened to the Till Dawn edition 
uh, a few times. They're real catchy songs. Sound great at my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Those are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Scott, we're back. Yeah. Let, let's get into it, shall we? What are we talking about? Well, David, uh, things are very bleak. Um, so uh, the American Not Cinematheque. Not just for New Yorkers. It's true. Uh, the American Cinematheque, our local, um, at this point, I would say probably most active rep house. They, they probably do more screenings than anywhere else in town. Um, just got done last night with what has become an annual event uh, called Bleak Week. Uh, they did the first one last year. Sadly, I was traveling during it, so I didn't get to attend any of it last year, but I went in earnest this year, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a week straight of varying degrees of unbelievably despairing films. Um, and it seems like counterintuitive as an organizing principle. These are the kind of films that are usually very hard to get a big audience for, unless, you know, it's a rare film or something of the sort. Um, but there is something about the fact that they kind of organized it in this whole thing and like really got people jazzed for it. And like most of the screens I went to were either sold out or near capacity. Um, and I just think they really did a good job of identifying where most of their audience is at, where society is at in terms of like, the fact that a lot of us do feel despair a lot of times about mm -hmm. the current state of the world, about the future of our society, if not our own civilization and uh, survival. Um, and that there's a lot of despair happening out there and it does feel good to come together and uh, experience those emotions together. So they showed like 35 films. I think they said it was over the course of seven days. Um, I saw, I think seven of them. And yeah, we just kind of wanted to talk in general about the idea of bleak films and um, our experiences with them and some, I'm sure some of our favorites and kind of the uh, culture around them and maybe like how they've developed over the years. We didn't really talk more about than just about the idea of let's talk about bleak films. So does that sound about like uh, what you understood when I was pitching the topic? Uh, yeah. And I, um, didn't attend a bleak week either year just cause I'm, uh, kind of a bad, uh, rep goer. I, I go in fits and spurts of, of, of rep theater going. Um, and I guess I'm traveling this week. Yeah. I was also out of town, um, for a lot of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was looking at, although I did watch the, uh, a Vimeo screener, the new restoration of the 1990 film twilight which is not the vampire movie twilight or right. the like wasn't there a movie where like paul newman played a retired thief or something yeah, or a retired right. cop or something called twilight it's not either of those uh it's a movie about a it's a hungarian movie um about the investigation of a child murder um that was part of bleak week uh yeah yeah so i did watch uh, I, I did watch that it's only like sort of new to me thing that i watched uh, around this um this thing 
but uh yeah i i mean you got it the main thing um of like people coming together and um and and uh saying yes we all relate to this or whatever i feel like that's often like when it comes to like emo music or something like there are certain people who'd be like why do you want to listen to such sad music <laughs> part of it is like part of it is i mean it's a cliche but it's almost like it's comforting to know i'm not the only one who feels this way totally um but i also yeah. think like i i I think maybe that's the ticket for why a lot of these films flourished, maybe especially in the period when they did is that it was more audience based. You know, I think as our sense of cinema has become more homebound, the idea of sitting down and watching something horribly depressing can feel very depressing if you're just watching it at home alone, but seeing the theater. So you think about maybe like the new Hollywood age as being the big kind of mainstream proliferation of very bleak films. Um, and that was like a time of peak theater going right before VHS came into play. And um, that idea of kind of experiencing it with other people gave you at least some of an outlet or some sense of community as opposed to like, okay, I've reached the horrible ending where three people have just died and I'm still sitting here alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's all, I know we're done just talking about the American cinema text programming, but it's such a great idea yeah. that, um, there's also something about them programming movies like this in this, it, it contextualizes a movie exactly. because last year for bleak week, they showed Anthony Mann's Gary Cooper, Western man of the West. Yeah. Which is a movie that I first saw on my own at home thinking like, Oh cool. I'm going to watch a Gary Cooper West Western, not realizing that it's like <laughs> brutal and upsetting. And there's yeah. like a part where like, uh, I can't remember which, uh, which Cretan is outlawed is like makes Julie London like strip it at gunpoint. Yeah. That's like really upsetting. Um, and so I wasn't like, I wasn't prepared. I like, I, I wonder, I mean, I, and I like, I did like the movie, but I wonder if, uh, I would have enjoyed it even more if I had, or appreciated it even more if I had gone into seeing like, Oh, I'm seeing this as part of a, a, a program of <laughs> depressing movies. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But at the same time, like there's something a little that almost makes that experience more harrowing if you're not expecting it. Like as I was kind of looking through various letterbox lists that I've made for like examples of this, I weirdly honed in on 1958 as like one of the bleakest Hollywood years. And it's like a time of mass prosperity in the US. There's no reason people should want to be like completely depressed. But I found like 10 films, including an Elvis film that has like a depressing ending. And it's like there's something in the air in the late 50s. And I think was that the man of the West year? I think that might have been earlier. And I'm thinking about it, but um, um, it is 58. Oh, it is yeah. 58. There you go. Um, so there's something in the air where you get like those two films. Uh, King Creole is the Elvis movie from that year. You get, you get Vertigo, which is I'm pretty sure Hitchcock's bleakest film. I haven't seen all of Hitchcock's films. The bleakest one I could think of. Um, Bonjour Tristesse, which is an Otto Preminger yeah. film. Um, a Time to Live and a Time to Die, which we talked about on a recent Patreon. Um, Some Came Running, I Want to Live, which is about the woman facing the death penalty. Um, Murder by Contract, Touch of Evil. Like all these films that are like really depressing, but the, in the context of like, well, it's an old Hollywood film you always sense that there should be some degree of safety, I think maybe just like reflexively. And mm -hmm. so when they trod you into kind of unsafe territory, it does feel all the more, it feels rougher, I guess, than hitting it in like a Bellatar film where you're like, well, I know what I'm in for here. <laughs> yeah. 
um, <clears throat> I didn't think to like focus in on certain specific years to get that specific, but I was thinking about, there seemed like there was a time and I think it was, um, unsurprisingly post nine 11 where like every horror movie, every American horror movie, everyone died at the end. Like, you know, you'd, you'd have the thing where I'm thinking of like, um, I don't know why this one's coming to mind. Uh, I never saw Wreck REC, but I saw the American remake of it, which I want to say is called Quarantine before that word was like loaded with other weight. But that has that thing of like, you think, uh, what's her name? Dexter's sister Uh, (laughs) is Jennifer. She's also in um, a couple, she's in like Drive to Cross Concrete. Um, I never oh, watched Dexter, so I, I cannot help you. Um, is it Jennifer Carpenter? Jennifer Carpenter, yeah. She's so good. I can't believe I forgot her name. She's so good on everything she's in. Uh, even though like the existence of her character in Dragged Across Concrete is just stupid, obvious ploy. Anyway, um, don't get me started on Dragged Across Concrete. Um, it sounds like you're getting yourself I mean, started just fine. Honestly, we actually probably shouldn't talk about uh, Craig Zoller. His movies are pretty bleak. Um, I've seen none of them. But... Uh, so anyway, whatever quarantine or whatever it was called had that thing of like Jennifer Carpenter, she's our lead. You think she's the final girl. And then like the very, like the tag at the very end before the credits is like, Oh no, she got killed too. You know? Hmm. Um, and it's not that there are a number of, of, of those where like the, I mean, the ring essentially has the thing where they think they stopped the monster, but then they don't. Um, and that could be like sequel bait or whatever, but it just seemed like there was, uh, a, a trend in the mid and late aughts um, of like, no one's getting out of this alive in, in horror movies. And it was like painted as fun, but uh, Oh, I guess the, I mean, the big one, depending on which cut you watch, and I guess this is a spoiler. Okay. This movie, if, you've, if you've only seen the American cut, but Neil Marshall's the descent, uh, which I've never seen the American cut because the DVD I've only ever seen it on DVD and that has the uh, original cut. Um, I've actually not seen the movie at all. Well, it's really great. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, that has one of the harshest ones where um, in the, you think the woman, the final girl, like finally gets away and then you realize, uh, no, not only she doesn't get, she doesn't get killed at the end, but she has lost her mind and she is stuck in the caves forever. And oh, she thinks she's getting away, but she's stuck there with the ghost of her deceased daughter. Uh, wow. uh, yeah, it's, that's a bleak one. And so I feel like there was a lot around that, that time of horror movies where everyone died by the end. Uh, and that's probably a, a big a post nine 11 thing. Yeah. Okay. So you're starting two things, probably going to start with the, you're starting two things in my head. I'm probably going to start with the first one, which is like, as I was thinking through other films than the ones issued during Bleak Week and trying to think of like coalescing a sense of a definition around um, what it constitutes like a bleak film. Is it all in the ending? Do you, would you say like, is that the kind of like definite marker? Um, huh, that's interesting because a part of me was like, 
there's a lot of films that I might consider bleak. Oh, but it does have, you know, they kind of wrap it up in the end and they kind of send you out the door being like, okay, that was tough, but I think everything's going to be okay. And that, that doesn't quite feel as bleak to me. Yeah. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to remember exactly how, Oh, so at the end of Prisoners, Jake Gyllenhaal can like hear the whistle from underground. Is that what I'm thinking of? So that's like, oh, I don't remember this. I don't remember much about that movie actually. Um, and you're the guy who liked. You were ahead of the curve for me at least. Ahead of me at least on on Villeneuve, because um, I did not like Prisoners. Even though you could say, oh, maybe that ending does offer a little of ho- a little bit of hope that Jake Gyllenhaal is going to find. Uh. Hugh Jackman or whatever. Yeah, but, um, this reminds me. I'm remembering it now. But uh, that's a movie that I, a big part of why I didn't like it is that it's it feels bleak for no real reason. Just like because that's I. This is an interesting. We're all over the place, but there's an interesting line, and I think it that line exists in different places for different people. Of like, this is bleak in a way that I relate to. And therefore, I feel understood by this movie, or I feel like I, I'm uh, being seen, as people say. Sure. And then there's a kind of bleak that I don't relate to, which either I'm just not on the same wavelength as the director, or it comes to me as comes across to me as posturing. Mm. Um, and that's like Prisoner seems like a movie that's trying to show off how bleak it is, and one that I'm really out of step with the the cinephile community. Uh, on the, uh, even more recently is you were never really here, which is a movie that I found uh, almost preposterous, um, like bordering on parody, um, and and could not get on board with. Yeah, I think in both of those films, I don't find them bleak. I think because of that posturing, but I think this is just one of those things where I don't mind the posturing. And we kind of talked about this a couple of times in different yeah. contexts where like, I'm okay with a little bit of pretension in movies and a little bit of like yeah. poserness. Um, I just think it's like, I don't know, it's, it, it kind of feels like reading those like edgy 90s comic books or whatever. And it's like, okay, this is like, you're kind of pushing it, but it's also kind of cool. Like, there's nothing but wrong also, with it. Also, you were a kid then. That's true. Like, I, I, you reminded me of one of my favorite Onion headlines, which <laughs> is uh, sad 50-year-old still writing Chuck Palahniuk novels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I've, uh, I don't find that stuff is, uh, just like, you know, listening to, like, uh, I used to listen, you know, the, the sex pistols and their sort of provocations and, and like, um, and stuff it's like, it doesn't, I, I don't know. It doesn't hit, it, it hits, it doesn't hit the same for me now that I'm a little bit more mature and that I'm a little bit more aware of like real, not just my own suffering, but like other people's, uh, actual problems. Uh, I want to ask you though, speaking of, movies that are so bleak that they're hilarious um did you see the painted bird mm, no no because i isn't that also like super long i think i was like excited yeah. to see it and then by the time i got an opportunity to i'd heard enough people say like it's just kind of ridiculous it is yeah it's let me see it's got to be three i was at three hours it sounds it's two right. hours and 49 minutes just shy of two hours but it just shy of three hours so it's nearly three hours of just 
the worst shit imaginable happening mostly to this main kid, but also to everyone that he encounters. And, um, it's, uh, it starts to become darkly funny at a certain point, but I don't think that's the, the goal of the movie. I, I, I found that movie to be ridiculous. Uh, but here we are talking about bleak movies. We don't like, there are so many bleak movies that I do like. Yeah. I had no shortage of examples. Um, and I guess kind of starting, th- this was the other thing that kind of kicked me off when you talk about like post nine 11 stuff, because I wasn't as much into horror then. So I was on much, much horror movies and song caught up with a lot of those, but it definitely kicked off a period. I think of like international films taking kind of a darker tinge. So as I was kind of going through like chronological stuff, I found very few examples that I would really think really fit from the nineties. And maybe that's just because like the nineties was a much more like hopeful time end of history kind of era of like, we're building a better tomorrow. I think of like the three colors trilogy being a perfect example. Like blue is a pretty despairing film, but it still has a sense of like building towards a future. If you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like by the time the post 9-11 era hits, you get suddenly a big onslaught of things and kind of maybe best represented by one of the films from the opening night of Bleak, which, which was Gus Van Sant's Jerry, which came out. I mean, he was well in development of this by the time 9-11 happened, but it came out like or premiered at Sundance the year after 9-11. So a couple months, really. Yes. Um, yeah. And then kicked off a run of his films that fans of his myself certainly included tend to point to as like the best, the peak of his career where he does that he does elephant and last days in the paranoid park in a very quick, like four or five, five years succession. Hmm. Um, and all of those are super bleak movies. And it was really, it was really cool to see Jerry again. I hadn't seen it in the theater since it came out in 2003. Um, and Van Sant was actually there for a little Q and a, and he's an interesting Q and, uh, person for a Q&A because he is kind of just mostly about the work and he has like some theoretical ideas too but like anytime uh Tim Grayson did, did the kind of moderate the Q&A had a question about like theories around the film he was like could be perhaps but then some of the audience asked was like was that like a fun movie to work on at all and then he went on this like whole tear about how like well yeah Matt and Casey are like super funny and we all got drinks afterwards and it was so hot in the desert that we just sweated out so we could never have a hangover and like <laughs> had this like super long answer for just like the process of just like hanging out and making the movie um but Jerry is still my favorite Van Sant film and that whole run is pretty incredible Paranoid Park is the one I'm always trying to turn people on to because it's was has been so ignored and isn't even considered like part of this proper like quote-unquote death trilogy even though I think the run of four films makes more sense altogether um and so hopefully they'll show Paranoid Park at some point in the future because that could really use some more exposure but yeah I mean even beyond Van Sant in that period you get like oh where's that section of my list you get like Demon Lover and Irreversible and Dogville and Old Boy all coming out like with a pretty quick succession in like 2002, 2003. Um, so I did do think there's a larger like cultural turn in there. Oh, a talking picture, which I know is a big favorite of yours. Mm-hmm. Not a film that you would expect to be bleak for most of its running time. And then at the end is suddenly like, Oh, that's, that's a gut punch. Yeah. Yeah. Dogville is a great example um, of the opposite of the like nineties build, building a better like yeah. <laughs> tomorrow type of thing of um and I guess this is like uh, um, to get back to Drive to Cross Concrete, which I said, don't get me started. Of but course, like, yeah. This will be our home um, base for all this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, to compare movies like Dogville and Drive to Cross Concrete, uh, I mean, 
Um, Dogville is a movie that like basically says no one's going to win except for the people who are already in power and are willing to use that power in brutal ways. Yeah. Um, uh, across concrete. I have so much, I have so many like difficult (laughs) feelings about this movie because there are things that there are a lot of things that I hate about it in how like just showy it is about how gory it is and how brutal Mm. the movie is that like that stuff kind of bothers me. But I'm also fascinated by it's kind of like a, I think people who only watch Judge Across Concrete in a surface level way are like, oh, he cast Mel Gibson as the lead as a kind of like to like um, uh, sympathize with him. And also the, the fact that it comes from, uh, I can't remember the name of the production company, but that has like uh, conservative backers and, and, and stuff like that. But I actually think Drive to Crack Concrete is more of like a, the searchers type of thing of using someone with a public like persona that is oh, sure. racist to actually question that. Because I think um, uh Dried Across Concrete essentially says that um, the racists and their targets are not going to get along. The only way there's going to be progress is when the racists die off. (laughs) Um, uh, But those are both kind of like bleak outlooks. Whereas if you look at, uh, I don't know why I'm feeling like I'm uh, today specifically wanting to speak up for Tyler because I I think he'd have (laughs) a lot to say here, but Tyler loves the hateful eight more than I do. I'm pretty big uh, but, on that myself, actually. Uh, but part, like, partially, like Tyler's, what, what Tyler loves about it is that it's the opposite of bleak, even though it's incredibly violent to the point that's part, part of what turns me off about it. Like the, some of the like horror movie level, level violence uh, or gore in the movie, like Damien Bashir literally getting his face shot off is yeah. like kind of upset, a little too upsetting to me. But what Tyler loves about it is that, um, uh, it's kind of the opposite message of Dread Across Concrete. It actually does show like the, you know, um, some of the Confederacy, Walton Goggins and uh, the uh, Black Bounty Hunter, Samuel Jackson, kind of like working together at the end, like putting aside the differences and working together in a way. I mean, they like, you know, still going to die probably, I guess, spoilers for The Hateful Eight. But yeah, um, I think Tyler's ignoring that part. <laughs> <laughs> I think but I find it like, a much more despairing film because it's like, yeah. oh, even if we can put aside our differences and work together, it's st- we're still on a downward trajectory here. Okay, <clears throat> but I don't see. I I I just don't see. Uh, I see where you're coming from, but I don't see Quentin Tarantino as a as a pessimist. Um, um I think he's maybe too. This, but this is my whole like guiding philosophy around Quentin Tarantino is I think he's his work is smarter than he even thinks it is. I think he has such (laughs) a finger on the pulse of himself and American culture and operates from such an instinctive place that he's not often, he doesn't often know what he's really unveiling with his work. And I think hatefully it's a perfect example of that where I don't think there's a mainstream film that better understood America in 2015 than the hateful eight. I don't think Quentin Tarantino really understands why that is, though. I think he's a bad (laughs) ambassador for that case. Um, But like, especially by the time Trump got elected the next year, I'm like this. The film was identifying exactly what was in the air at exactly that moment. And people just dismissed it because it was immature about how it was going about it. 
Uh, I'm not dismissive of hateful eight. I, I, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying more broadly, it was definitely dismissed. Okay. Um, I just, maybe it's just, I'm just uh, somewhat squeamish in my old age, but I mean, not necessarily. It's just, it's contextual. Sure. You know, like I don't mind John Wick shooting 80 people in the face. Like that's a John Wick movie. That's, (laughs) that's fine. But there's something about like in hateful eight, when we get the flashback to, uh, what's it? Millie's what's the place they're at? The Uh, uh, sounds right. When, when the bad guys show up and there are like, there are so many people at the store and you're like, Oh my God, he, he packed the scene full of people so that they could kill all of them. Like, 100%. why couldn't there be two people for them to kill? They <laughs> had to watch eight people get killed. Eight now, innocent people get killed. That wouldn't drive home the entire deal of the film as much, you know? Yeah. Um, although this is where we're getting off of bleak things. Uh, but okay. So you like, I'm sure you've had, you know, we don't watch, all movies in the order that came out. We watch, we discover older movies. Right. So sometimes you stumble across, like I knew that like the hate flight has all kinds of stuff from the great silence. Like right. the great silence, like opens in like the same way with like a, a, a stagecoach in the snow, like picking up a stranded guy. Who's the sheriff of the town. They're going to literally the exact same way that hateful hate kind of uh, starts off. But also that thing of the, Killers showing up beforehand, killing everyone mm. at the the general store or whatever, and dumping their bodies in the well, and then waiting. Uh, that's straight out of the Tall T, which I didn't even see until like a year ago, or like I saw it at TCM Fest twenty twenty one, I think, or twenty twenty two. Seen that? Um, uh, it's based on an Elmore Leonard uh, story, but uh, yeah, the exact same thing happens in the Tall T. They, you think like, oh, that's the guy who runs the general store. It's like, oh no, they right. killed those guys. They killed the man and his son who were in the general store and threw him in a well. Um, yeah, it's a Bud Bedeker, um western based on an Elmore Leonard story. I think I don't tend to dig yeah. a Bedeker. I've only seen a couple of his. I, I should probably see more. I've seen this one, and I've seen the Bullfighter and the Lady, which is uh, yeah, I didn't care for that, that one. Is that Robert? Is that Robert Stack? I don't remember. It's been a while Where's since I saw that. Kurt Lancaster. No, I think it's Robert Stack. I like the bullfighter and the lady. Um, yeah, Robert Stack. I saw it a long time ago, um, which means I saw it on film, which is cool. Yeah, I saw. It, and then I saw it more recently than you because it was a digital showing at the Arrow. Yeah, no, I saw it in Chicago. There, um, I don't know if there's still a screening room in the back of a bank on on Irving Park. Chicagoans let me know if there's still a weird rep house that like there's a bank on Irving Park that for some reason has like a small like theater in it. And so I used to go see uh they would show old movies. They showed both and the lady they showed that's what the first place I saw Nanak of the North was on the big screen at oh right on this, this weird bank. <laughs> I think in the North man, I, this is way off topic, but I know that it has a dodgy reputation, but that is a good movie. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Uh, I yeah. think it helps to know the reputation going in and know it's that probably like, for the best. Yeah. Yeah. That what you're seeing is not necessarily real, but, uh, yeah, it's a hell of a watch. Um, I really like the, I have the flicker alley disc that has that and other, other flarity stuff, but also like other stuff that kind of like 
contextualizes it. It works as it's almost like an educational tool that that uh, oh, okay. uh, Blu-ray. Yeah. Okay, back to bleak movies. Um, you know, another movie like Man of the West. I'm not sure where this fits in your years of things, but another movie that I'd like went in not knowing it was going to be as bleak as it was, and was like. Like the movie but was fucking bummed out, and I know you like this movie, um, John Huston's Fat City. Oh yeah, uh, that that's been a. I haven't seen that in fifteen years at least, but yeah, that's that's definitely one that caught me off guard as well. But yeah, bleak watch. Uh, uh yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's seventy two, so I'm not sure what that. Uh, you know, I guess early seventies like America is like, you know, the sixties sort of like disillusioned disillusioned everybody with you know two kennedys and mlk being assassinated and being yeah. hired in the, in the in the vietnam war i'm sure there was a lot to be uh bleak about um uh i do like the occasionally like i mean i talked about like better cross concrete or or painted bird certain certain things uh being unintentionally funny but i do like the kind of i think intentionally like funny or at least like offbeat type of moment um there's in fat city um jeff bridges like has sex with his girlfriend in the car and it's like it's not like a sexy sex scene it's like sure it's it's uh very perfunctory and kind of sad but the uh the song playing on the radio is by bread and it's uh, <laughs> the song. Like I, if the picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? It's like, it's such a like, yeah. like uh, soft Rocky song to like be in the middle of this, like bleak bummer of a moment. Um, Speaking uh, of actually being caught off guard by bleak films around, around this era starring Jeff Bridges. Uh, the first time I saw the last picture show, I did not expect that to be as bleak as it was. Yeah, that uh, I think I had read the novel actually, so I think oh, I went okay. in knowing. Yeah, um, great novel too. Uh, yeah, so but that's a, a that's a great one. You know what's another seventies movie that is bleak, but doesn't have the reputation for being bleak because a lot of people just have this superficial idea of it. But uh, Saturday Night Fever. I knew exactly where you're going as soon as you said that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and also speaking of, I mean, that's uh, at least Jeff, Jeff Bridges has. It's it's un. Pleasant, pleasant, but it's consensual sex in a car. You know, Saturday Night Fever has a rape scene in, in, in yeah. the back of a car. Um, and yeah, I, mean, so I feel like so many people are like, oh, I'm going to watch that corny 70s yeah. movie with uh, uh, John Travolta in the, in the suits and carrying the paint cans and eating the pizza. But it's like, it's a, it's a bleak movie about someone with like no real options except for this one fleeting thing yeah i mean it's essentially uh, uh, like i don't know if you've seen like rocco and his brothers but it's basically like that kind of thing only with a couple of disco scenes <laughs> i have not seen rocco and his brothers i should see that uh you should um, it's, it's on my list as like one of the bleaker films but it's so so okay. so so good i saw that with uh i don't think he's a friend of the show but uh gen general acquaintance of the show wade Pasak. And we both came out of that movie like literally yelling at each other about how good it was. <laughs> I could not believe <laughs> how great it was. Um, I was also taking some notes or noting down some films that I don't think people think of as a bleak, but which really kind of are uh, chief among them, the red shoes, um, which 
you know, I, I think is most noted for like its big fantasy dance sequence. But I revisited the film. I've seen it so, so, so many times. One of my favorite films. And obviously, I always knew like it has kind of the downer ending where, spoiler for a film most cinephiles have seen, where she like jumps to her death and maybe it's the shoes that are causing her to do that. And like, yeah, it's kind of a downer ending. But I think it's actually kind of shot through with a sense of despair long before that. Um, because the thing that I connected on the most recent viewing that I hadn't thought of before is there's, um, that line, kind of the famous line where she's first meeting Anton Wahlberg and he's like, why do you want to dance? And she's like, well, why do you want to live? And he's like, I I don't know why, but I must. And she's like, that's the same for me with dancing. Um, and that's a cool little line, but it also kind of points to how, I guess, empty the whole affairs for her that it's not like this ecstatic pursuit. It's just like something she needs to do or else she won't feel complete. Um, and, uh, then there's a line at the very end of the film, um, or not the end of film. This is right after Vicky's uh, lover who she's had a romance with has left her because she's so committed to dancing and she's essentially ruined her chance for happiness because she must keep dancing. Um, and and Don Wilbur's character, tries to soothe her and says sorrow past life is so unimportant um which is like kind of the <laughs> overriding ethos of the film that like none of this matters just dancing but that keeps being her downfall um and it's really about like how destructive uh artistic pursuit or really any kind of like deep professional pursuit is if you don't have something else going on in your life um and so as, as much of that film is often quite joyful, I, I do more and more every time I watch it, find a little bit bleaker. Um, I've only seen it once. Uh, probably oh, because of that. Uh, but uh, speaking of dancing movies, uh, all that jazz is uh, yeah. pretty bleak. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like we're, we've, we've now veered into this territory of movies that are like, there's Eager a certain bleak. irony to their, uh, what did you say? Secret bleak. Yeah. Yeah. There's a certain irony, irony too. What are the, what, what are movies that are on your lists that are like the pure despair consciously bleak? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, actually, well, I was just looking at chronologically. Some of the first ones I thought of were like silent era stuff. And like when the silent era goes dark, that shit is dark as hell. So like, I know the last laugh has like the ending that they got kind of tagged on, but you kind of get, tell yeah. where it's supposed to end and where it's supposed to end is very despairing. Um, yeah. yeah. And shoot, why can't I think of the actor's name from that now? Um, I'm not going to be any help. God damn it. Um, very famous silent film actor. I got to look him up because their listeners will hate us if we don't identify him. Um, Emil Jannings. Yeah. Emil ya- Jannings. German. Come Jannings, on. of course. Um, I should know that. Yeah, he had a real run to this because like The Last Command is a similar kind of deal. And it's not a silent film, but like The Blue Angel, um, which was, I think, maybe his first sound film is definitely a similar trajectory of just like this guy further and further humiliating and degrading himself over time. Mm -hmm. And then like Diary of a Lost Girl and Pandora's Box, the two uh, major Louis Brooks films are super, super downers. Um, And of course from there i was i guess my next kind of gut instincts were like tarkovsky um certainly bellatar um who i know you haven't seen as much of his stuff but the one you have seen verkmeister harmony certainly yeah up to the kind of the classical definition of this thing um another tyler fave by the way oh yeah big time (laughs) um 
I, I think weirdly the ones that tend to come in mind for me are, yeah, films with a little bit of a broader canvas that have like, I don't know. I just always picture like big empty landscapes that are maybe on fire. Like that's kind of like my, the image that comes to mind <laughs> of like major works of bleak cinema. So like, um, Tarkovsky's the sacrifice has, you know, they light a whole goddamn house on fire. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in Rickmeister harmonies. And I was trying to think of what else was kind of hitting that mark. Um, I guess Day of the Locust is not really like a, that's a more urban set film, but the end of that is practically the apocalypse. Um, oh, anything by uh, Carlos Regattas. Um Have you seen any of his stuff? I don't think I have. He did what, um, uh, what's the Tenebrous? Uh, yeah, Post Tenebrous Lux uh, and uh, Silent Light are probably his two most famous ones. I mean, battle of heaven got some notices too that's the only one i don't like though but all of his films are like i mean there's some redemption sort of at the end of silent light but most of his films are and most of silent light for that matter are very despairing affairs but in that kind of like great classical way of just absolutely gorgeous to look at um and really really great performances um oh come and see is the other kind of big one in that kind of vein of like empty landscapes that are just on just total hellscapes yeah, and I guess um, both years the American Cinematheque has done a come and see the Ascent yeah. double feature. Um, uh, yeah, I come and see is fantastic. The Ascent I've seen, I should probably see it again. I feel like it's been a while, but um, uh, yeah, I'm. Tr- I don't know. Um, you mentioning fire. <clears throat> now I know that um, the 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 what's the word i'm looking for the cognoscenti of film of, of hip film cinephiles okay. of hip cinephiles has has turned hard against pablo uh lorraine but um his movie still mostly emma or uh his movie emma or emma uh however you say it um did you see that one i did i, I mean that's one that starts very strong great first kind of image or sequence or whatever it is. And I could not hang with it after that. Uh, I, well, I loved it. I saw it twice um, oh, wow. in the theater. So um, uh, yeah, I, mean, I saw it at TIFF and then when it came out, I was like, Natalie, you will like this. Even though like that shows you what she did. She really liked it. Okay. Um, but that's when we like, I think I remember doing the TIFF wrap up podcast that year, which that would have been 2019. Right. 2018 but it was this, well, whatever it was the same year as portrait of a lady on fire oh so 19 because i remember ta- okay so i remember talking with angie han when she was the guest for the rap episode about how like portrait of a lady on fire is a movie that is very erotic but has very little actual like sex scenes in it mm-hmm. whereas emma is a movie that has tons of sex and is not at all erotic it's incredibly bleak and sad because uh the movie is about a uh, a couple who, when we meet them, they have this has already happened. They adopted a child. The child who was already like a they didn't adopt a baby. They adopted like a a, a child. I don't know what you call a a movie that a movie a, a kid that's older than a toddler, but like like less, less than a tween. Yeah, just a child. Um, the child turned out to be like um, disturbed to the point like uh, set. Emma's sister's face on fire. 
And so they gave the child back or whatever. And so now it's a, this is a movie about a marriage trying to like, uh, survive that, that, that sort of, uh, trauma and that sort of guilt. And, uh, a lot of it has to do with Emma going out and having lots of, uh, 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 rescuous encounters with all sorts of different people, none of which seem the least bit fun or seem to bring her anything more than just sort of a, a moment's distraction. Uh, so, that, uh, yeah, that's a pretty bleak movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one that like, and I just had a hard time hanging with it and it just seemed to be pummeling in a way. Um, let's see. Oh, well, there's, I mean, a, a number of, major filmmakers that kind of trafficked in bleak affair, like basically every Mickey Unarase and Kenji Mizuguchi movie are just like endlessly punishing towards their characters. And sure enough, they played um, life of Ohuru, which is, I think the only movie that I'm like, there's always that meme that people repurpose from the Simpsons of um, I think it's Hans Molman on the phone and being like, Oh no, that's too, I can't remember what the Simpsons actual quote is, but it, he's like asking for a certain amount of something. He's like, no, that's too, whatever. I, yeah. Ohuru is like, yeah, I'm on the phone asking for bleak cinema. And I'm like, that's too bleak. <laughs> it's two and a half hours of just absolutely relentless pummeling. Um, but like, I'm, a, I'm big on, uh, what is that? Story of Last Chrysanthemums and uh-huh. uh, uh, Central of the Bailiff, certainly Ugetsu. Um, a lot of his other major works, I think are pretty, pretty incredible. And the same goes for... I'm- Narusei, who I've seen a ton of, and all of his films are very bleak, but very, very good. Um, yeah, I've seen very little Mizuguchi. Um, I've seen the the 47 Ronin or whatever, which is like, um, I love it, but it's like, a, it feels like a, a joke to, <laughs> like a prank, that movie, to be like, this movie's about samurai. It's four hours long, and there is one brief fight, like sword fight in the movie. <laughs> It's mostly just about samurai sitting around and talking for four hours. And I love it. Yeah, I've not seen that uh, one. Um, and then, of course, like Ingmar Bergman has a huge reputation of just relentlessly bleak affairs. I, most of his films, I kind of find, have that kind of twist at the end. Not a twist, like a plot twist, but like just a little like note that ends a little bit more hopefully. So like they showed Cries and Whispers at Bleak Week this year, which is certainly for most of its runtime, a very despairing affair but it does have a sense of like the sisters having come together by the end of the film and them reaching some sort of catharsis through their experience. But there's also a number of his films which don't have that same catharsis, like um, Brink of Life, which is not one of his better known films, which I really think more people should check out, but more famously like The Virgin Spring, Through Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence are all pretty relentless in their despair. Yeah. Um... And that's why, uh, yeah, I, the Virgin Spring is is great. Uh, never liked the Last House on the Left, though. Um, never saw it. There's like, it's you know, I'm all for blending horror and comedy, but Last House on the Left doesn't so much blend it as it is like a relentlessly brutal, violent, bleak movie that occasionally is interrupted by two bumbling cops. Uh, <laughs> like it's, it's so jarring that I've never been able to, 
to get on board with it. Uh, I'm also looking at the other things they they showed as part of Bleak, Bleak Week this year. I've been meaning to rewatch Fat Girl because I saw it about 20 years ago, maybe even more than 20 years ago, and I didn't care for it. Um, oh, so I just saw it last night for the first time at Bleak Week. Um, I'd never yeah. seen it before, and I'm so glad I did. I really liked it. Um, most of its running time, I'm like, I can see why people were put off by this. And then that ending comes. I'm like, holy shit, man. Um <laughs> But I, I felt the ending was part of my problem with it is that it's it's like uh, it's really putting its thumb on the scale in terms of what it's uh, what it's saying, or at least that's how I felt when I was like in my early twenties. Um, so I don't know if I would still feel that way uh, now. If I would still, if I would, if I would like it more. The the one thing from the movie I really remember loving and become maybe because it's the scene where no one's talking finally but uh the mom and the two daughters like driving on the on the freeway on the highway and like all the semi trucks uh, uh around them I, I was like this this scene is like encapsulates the entire movie without the like endless laying it on with the too much too much yapping uh, <laughs> girls talk too much that's what david Bax thinks yeah. going for all these oh, women these yapping yeah um but no uh i would probably like fat girl now i just didn't like it at the time and i'd definitely I be curious to like... hear what you think of it it's not because i think you're forgetting some nuances of the ending and i don't want to get too much in the details of it um okay. on, on pod but i'd be curious to hear if you how much you remember of it Cause I also, I, so I saw that and then only a few years later, a couple of years later, she made sex is comedy, which I also really didn't like. So I think I got it in my head that I just don't like Catherine Berlot, Berlay, um, however you say it. Um, uh, oh yeah. Sex is comedy is the next year. Yeah. I, um, uh, I didn't like that, but then I liked her sleeping beauty from 2010 and then I'm yeah. hearing good things about last summer that I think was just it can maybe. Yeah. Um, so maybe I need to give her uh, uh, another shot just in general. Yeah. This was the first of her films that I've seen. Um, so I'm now excited to see more uh, abuse of weakness. I know is on criterion right now. So go check that out. Uh, was there um, any other stuff from the series that kind of jumped out of you? Well, um, yeah, there was one other. No, I can't remember what it was. Uh, oh, yeah, a movie that I love, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. That's one that I really need to rewatch because it's been a long time. I don't remember it that well, but I, I remember really liking it at the time. Which, oh, this maybe could have been our top of show topic because it's uh, really interesting. Um, you saw about how Disney is censored The French Connection? Yeah. Um uh because gene heckman's character uses the n-word and yeah like in an unambiguously racist way yeah uses is correct uh way to <laughs> describe it uh yeah um and uh i i i i have obviously i think probably most of our listeners would agree with a, a, a anti-censorship point of view but also beyond that, just like the idea that you can't have a main character who's a bad person. 
Right. <laughs> you know, that, that, that sort of bothers me. But anyway, this gets to, um, yeah, the friends of Eddie Coyle is another movie that is just full of bad people. And, and, uh, Peter Boyle's character. I remember I know uses the N word multiple times in, in the movie. Um, uh, but, uh, I guess that's, that's maybe why I wanted to, to talk about, about that. But friends of Eddie Coyle is just an, a, a fantastic movie, but, uh, about a bunch of bad people. And I, I, uh, shudder to think that there are people who can't, that there are so many people who can't handle watching movies about bad people. It's the best kind of movie. Uh, yeah. But, uh, uh, also, um, one thing that always, that kind of makes me laugh extra textually about the friends of Eddie Coyle is to think about how, like how far professional sports have come in the U S oh, sure. where like, they're so protective of their brands now. Yeah. You know, the fact that like a scene in friends of friends of Eddie Coyle is like takes place um, at a Boston Bruins game. And they're like talking about Bobby Orr, like probably the biggest star in the sport at the time. Meanwhile, Peter Boyle is like plotting Mitchum's murder. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just funny to have such a bleak movie that has like, let's go. uh, Let's get this guy drunk at a Bruins game so we can kill him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're spoiling a lot of movies on this episode well that's uh, yeah that's what kind of why i was wondering at the beginning if like it does come down to the end for a lot of these and sometimes it does um yeah. uh one film that played at the festival that i didn't watch at the festival but did see for the first time quite recently is they shoot horses don't they have you seen that film before i have never seen it and i'm curious to know how you saw it uh, oh i just ha- it- i just have the blu-ray you're welcome to borrow it Oh yeah, good because it's not streaming anywhere. I yeah, uh, I was just looking. <laughs> it is so good. Uh, I'd read the novel some years ago, um, okay. and so it'd kind of been on my list for a while. And then I picked up the Blu-ray at some Kino sale over the course of time, and I'm glad that I did because it's it's one that I anticipate rewatching a lot. Um, and so I should, we watched as part of our movie night that I get together with with some friends of ours um, every week or so. Um, and I kind of, so I brought it to movie night and then one of the people there was like, I had a horrible week. I was like, well, my selection is very bleak this week. Should we watch something else? And she was like, no, let's just watch it. And we all like loved it. And <laughs> she was ultimately the kind of way I feel, which is like, if a movie is that good, it can only really feel so bleak, um, where it has such a fine sense of, yeah, uh, yeah. character and dialogue and all that kind of stuff. And just kind of a real classically great quality, um, it, it's certainly very despairing, but um, can only feel so bad because it's was made so well. I think Sidney Pollock's not quite his first film. He'd done a couple of films. Actually, he did another film that's on my list for bleak films called This Property is Condemned, which I saw at the New Beverly just kind of on a whim. And boy, that's a despairing <laughs> exercise, but it's really, really good. Um, but it was kind of his breakthrough film. It was a huge hit at the Oscars and all that kind of stuff. Um, they Shoot Horses, that is. Um, and it's about a period of... A, weird phenomenon in American history that people don't really talk about anymore. Probably for a good reason, because we shall be ashamed of it, of these like dance marathons where people would just literally have to dance and dance could just be like swaying back and forth, but literally have to keep moving for sometimes months on end. We could find, we could just kind of look up the history of them and found one that lasted for five months of you get like, these short, like 10 minute breaks where you can kind of mm-hmm. sleep or apparently according to the film, people would learn to sleep standing up. Um, but would literally just keep going 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months on end dancing. 
Um, basically, it seemed like so other people who were in the midst of the depression as well, because that's when these kind of took off, um, could pay to see people who are more miserable than they were. <laughs> that seemed to be the way that they kind of their main <laughs> audience was people who were just slightly less miserable than people who were being forced to dance for months on end. And at the end of the dance, you know, if you won, you'd want win a couple thousand dollars or whatever. And so it was good money in the 1930s, mm -hmm. but yeah. that was assuming that you lasted for five months, basically on your feet the entire time. Wow. Uh, I imagine there had to be some deaths. Um, uh, there are in the film at least. And okay. I would imagine, uh, I can't remember some of the gr more gruesome details we felt saw, but the novel was written by a guy who worked as a bouncer, for those um dance contests and so he just rounded up every horrible story that he saw and put it in the novel wow um okay well we could probably move toward uh wrapping up but um you remain just by using the word uh what was the other property the other uh this property is condemned just by using the word property you reminded me of a, a 1960 film called private property oh um, yeah that's a good film yeah so uh warren oates and Corey Allen, I guess, play two criminals. Are they murderers? I can't remember if they're murderers, whatever they're running either. from. Yeah. But they basically hide out in this like empty house under construction, I think, in like the uh in like Beverly Hills or in somewhere in the LA like Hills. And there's a lonely housewife next door. And uh I guess it Corey Allen's character decides he's going to seduce the woman to sleep with Warren Oates's character. Who's like a sort of a virgin, but also partially like a not fully mentally developed man child. Right. Yeah. N yeah. That's not a fun movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I said, we should start wrapping up, but I have a, 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 another sort of mini category to bring up. Cause I was yeah. looking at, I was looking at last year's bleak week. Mm -hmm. And it, so what do you think, of movies that are bleak bleak in a sort of like point making way, because I think you and I are in, they didn't show the Oxbow incident, but I think you and I are on different pages with the Oxbow incident, which right. I really like. Um, but they did show, and I don't know if you'll disagree with this categorization, but they showed Anya Svarta's Vagabond, which to me has always seemed like, yes, it's a very bleak movie. We know like it starts with the character dead and then we yeah. see the events leading up up to that but it has uh, it has always felt to me and i mean this in a positive way of being like a feminist statement film like this woman is the victim of of uh the patriarchy or of men's like entitled self entitlements and and uh and boorish behavior and stuff like that um does it feel less bleak to you if it has a point to make about it all yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it feels less bleak. It just my own taste for films tends to go away from those that have a distinct thesis that it, they set out to prove. Um, and that's where I kind of run into trouble with the Oxbow incident. I haven't seen Vagabond in almost 20 years at this point. So I, I should watch it again and see if I feel differently about it. But that was kind of how I remember it as well of a similar kind of struggle with its sense of point making. Yeah. Yeah. I, th this is one of those things. Like, I think we talked about, we talked about this, uh, on a Patreon episode that I think is up by now, um, with triangle of sadness, how like sometimes there are things that bother you that also bother me, but not nearly as much. Right. <laughs> you know? So I definitely like 
when, uh, when you tell me about why you didn't like the Oxbow incident or why you why you didn't like Triangle of Sadness, I fully get it. But I just don't like have that much of an adverse reaction to that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I like it better when the tackle more is like a subject than a thesis. Like to use a recent example of a film that I'm writing a review for that will post tonight um, on the day we're recording this uh, new film that's just coming out called Blue Jean um, is very much about the damaging effects of anti LGBTQIA plus, et cetera, uh, legislation um, specifically centered around uh, the UK in the 80s and a law that was in place from 1888 till 2003, I believe, um, that banned the you know, they said the promotion of homosexual material, but we all know what that means. Um, it's just banning anyone being gay anywhere, um, which uh, is obviously something the film comes down against. It's not in favor of that, um, but it's also about internalized uh, homophobia and the ways in which uh, as someone tries to protect themselves in that environment, they can do damage to others. And I think sometimes films like the Oxbow incident or my memory of Vagabond um, tend to separate people out into there's the good people and there's the bad people. And there are people who come out victorious and come, people who are victims and they're oppressors and so forth. Whereas mm-hmm. a film like Blue Jean and some of the better angles of that kind of approach are like, yes, this situation is bad and the effects it has are deeper than just individual people suffering. It causes, it turns people into people they don't want to be. Um, and that's a more interesting angle on it to me. And I think honestly, a more damning one of whatever the thing is they're trying to approach. Uh, all right. Well, <clears throat> We could, uh, if we're looking continue. to wrap up, I do want to kind of do a bullet run through just some random recommendations that came to mind, um, okay. along this topic lines. Um, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Uh, when pre-code goes bleak, it goes bleak as hell. Um, similarly, the story of temple Drake, um, there's a great film that feels like a pre-code film, but it's a couple of years after, I don't know how they got away with it called they won't forget, which is about mob violence. Um, not like gang mobs, but like mobs of people, oh, okay. um, okay. Uh, the Seventh Victim is my favorite Val Luton film. It, I think it's considerably better than like Cat People or Leopard Man or, or whatever else people really like from him. Um, in it is has a ending so bleak I cannot believe they made it under the code. Um, let's see. I mentioned Rockwell's Brothers. Oh, last year Marion Bad. Um, mm-hmm. People kind of remember it as this super formally inventive film, but, and it is, but it also has a central core of despair underneath of it. Um, the fire within is about a guy who announces at the start that he's going to commit suicide and, uh, spends the next hour and a half finding more and more reasons to do so. Uh, oh, that's kind of like the devil probably. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of Agnes Varda, uh, Le Bonaire is probably the sunniest, bleakest film ever made. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, to do Wanda, the shoot. Now I can't remember. Um, Barbara, no, not Barbara. Barbara Sun. Uh, is it Barbara? You got me wondering. Wanda, nineteen seventy. Barbara Loden. I almost said code. Okay. Yeah, Barbara Loden film. Super bleak. Super good. Um, Dude, got to mention Sallow or the Hundred Twenty Days of Solemn that played sure. last year at Bleak Fest. Uh, I'll take any chance to plug Zagenerweisen, which is Seijin Suzuki's kind of comeback film. It's on Criterion right now. Very, very much recommend people check it out. It's my favorite Suzuki film. 
And it's completely unlike the stuff he made in the 60s, but also kind of like that. Um, oh, the one that I really wanted to mention, um, only to say that nobody should ever watch this film. And if, if that warning intrigues you, then maybe you're the right person too. But if you have any hesitation, do not watch the film Onks from 1983. It's about a serial killer from the port- a point of view of a serial killer. And it is the most disgusting film I've ever seen. And okay. it's so, 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 so good, but no one should ever watch it. Um, okay. What about Henry portrait of a serial killer? I've actually that's... never seen it. I'm kind of, okay. That sounds kind of similar. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah I, I watched it once and said I would never watch it again. And I did watch it again. And of course. Yeah. I might, I might be done now. Yeah. We'll see. <clears throat> um, oh, I, I, this is not like a recommendation that nobody knows about, but I wanted to kind of mention full metal jacket as I think, the first film that I would have seen that kind of gave me the feeling that a lot of these films do. Mm. Um, and which was a very uneasy first experience, but which I, I still like. I think it's kind of unfairly ragged on these days. Oh, um, I didn't, I didn't know about that. I still like it. I think that and clockwork orange people kind of like hone in on as like the teenage Kubrick films that you watch when you're like 15 or whatever. Like I mean, this is edgy as hell, man. Um, I definitely get that with Copper Orange. I, that's when I don't really want to watch again, but uh, I like Full Metal Jacket. I still think they're both really good films. I don't know. Um, let's see. Uh, Wearing Freakin's Bug. It's really good. Um, uh, again, not a recommendation, but worth mentioning the Cohen's run of super bleak films that, that, that they did no country for old men burn after reading and a serious man in rapid succession. Um, it's, yeah and and really that they took their capital from no country for open and were like okay let's let's go bleaker um yeah, yeah that's yeah I, I remember at the time feeling like uh burn after reading was not burn after reading was talk about a movie that's not appreciated when it came out yeah uh, because it is bleaker than than no country for old men but uh, I think people saw like, why did they go from No Country for Old Men to making this like light romp? And it's like that's not a light romp. Not. I mean, it's not very so funny. It is very funny. Yeah. Um, did you see? So I don't know how were you. I know you're not much for gaming, but I don't know if you know in the new Legend of Zelda game, you can like construct um, basically like small machines and stuff like that that you have to use for various missions and stuff. And someone constructed okay. the the dildo chair from Burn After Reading <laughs> in it. <laughs> oh uh, that's what does he say like uh on that setup to mold hard rubber yeah. <laughs> it's like i made all this myself except for the dildo i'm, I'm not set up to mold hard rubber so good <laughs> um uh, and then two last ones uh on Iara, which is a swedish science fiction movie about a spaceship plummeting ever more towards his demise it was on my top 10 that year it's really yeah. good and horribly bleak and then i'll take every attention uh, chance i can to remind people about the scary of 61st and how great that is yeah good movie and that's a film uh, that blends comedy with unending despair really well yeah um and also I, we made it this whole episode without talking about cassavetes at all it's hard to oh, God, take, yeah uh faces husbands to killing with chinese bookie opening night these are all pretty bleak movies and they're yeah, all great i can't believe i didn't note any of those yeah well i'm sure there's other people didn't note so remind us listeners yeah let us know what other bleak movies we should watch or maybe should avoid like henry portrait killer and angst <laughs> um uh in the meantime i already said find me at david battleship or email me at david follow me on twitter at david pretension on letterboxd at david backs um 
and check out my other podcast, the one where I met your mother, where my wife and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met, How I met Your Mother every week. Uh, Scott, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow, and I just set up myself at Blue Sky. Um, I guess I'm not yet sure how people find people on Blue Sky, but I'm also Rail of Tomorrow there. I think you can probably search my name, but I just signed up for today. So we'll find out. And at Letterboxd. Okay. All right. Well, um, thank you at home for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye.